Our sermon text today comes from Joshua chapter 24. If you would stand as I read our passage. Joshua 24 beginning in verse 14. Now therefore fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Then the people answered, far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord and serve other gods. For it is the Lord, our God, who brought us and our fathers up from the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, who did those great signs in our sight and preserved us all in the way that we went and among all the peoples through whom we passed. And the Lord drove out before us all the peoples, the Amorites who lived in the land. Therefore, we also will serve the Lord, for he is our God. But Joshua said to the people, you are not able to serve the Lord, for he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do you harm and consume you after having done you good. And the people said to Joshua, no, but we will serve the Lord. Then Joshua said to the people, you are witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen the Lord to serve him. And they said, we are witnesses He said, then put away the foreign gods that are among you and incline your heart to the Lord, the God of Israel. And the people said to Joshua, the Lord, our God, we will serve and his voice we will obey. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Uh, Children, if you want a uh, a children's bulletin, raise your hand and you can follow along in the children's bulletin as we walk through Joshua chapter 24. Keep your hands high. Children only, I see you. Um, All right, so this is a big Sunday. We're finishing the book of Joshua. And so if you've been with us, you know that these past three chapters are three separate occurrences when Joshua is calling either the leaders of Israel or all of Israel together to tell them something. He did this in chapter 22, fast forward 20 years, he did it in chapter 23. And then today we come to Joshua's final appeal. He calls everybody together, he's 110 years old, to say one final thing. Some words that have become very famous. He says, choose this day whom you will serve. Most people think that Joshua, he could see the writing on the wall. There there, there are elements in this text. Uh, There are, obviously we know from three chapters down in Judges chapter two that things don't go well. We have every reason to believe that Joshua sees that things are not going the way that he wants them to, that we should go for Israel. So he's calling the people together and he's saying, choose whom you will serve. Today, make this choice. So I was thinking this week, like what are some of the really big decisions that we have to make? I mean, certainly where you go to school, that's a big decision, gonna shape a lot about your life. Uh, What kind of job you take, uh, probably one of the biggest is who you marry. I'm sure Angela did not realize when she agreed to marry me that she would, that that would entail prepping for a category five hurricane this week. Uh, She called me on Friday really concerned because she could only find 45 bottles of water. I was like, sweetie, we are set until Christmas. And that water should pair nicely with all our cans of SpaghettiOs that we have stored away now. 
But if you think about it, what's the difference between a small choice and a big choice? You know, an unimportant decision and a really important decision. And the difference is how long that decision is going to affect your life. You know, what you eat after lunch today, or after, you know, for lunch after the service today, that's not going to affect much of the rest of your life. You probably won't affect you, but past dinner. I mean, if you eat something really bad, maybe it'll affect you till tomorrow, but, but n- certainly not past that. But big decisions, like where you go to school and where you work and certainly who you marry, these are the kinds of decisions that impact your life for the long haul. And there is no decision that will impact our lives longer than the decision to, uh, to whom we serve. What God is it that we serve? Who do we bow to? And that's what Joshua is wanting to hammer down in this passage. So he calls these people together and he doesn't just ask them for lip service. He doesn't just ask them to say who it is that they serve. He wants them to put their money where their mouth is and he wants them to make a covenant, to renew this covenant that they have with God. And so what I would like to do this morning is simply to walk through this passage, understanding what it is that they're doing and Joshua's aim in doing this. So we're gonna start with the reasons that they should make this covenant. And this is the first 13 verses of the passage. And the reason they should make this covenant is pretty simple, because of who God is. I mean, that's that's it. They should make this covenant because of who God is. And from what I understand about ancient Near East covenants, it's very common to begin a covenant with the why. Why is it that we should enter into this covenant? And Joshua has four things to say about why, but before we look at it, it's important to see the way that he's communicating these things. How does he start off verse two? I think it's verse two. Thus says the Lord. Thus says the Lord. This is the prophetic formula. I mean, this says I am speaking for God. For us, the only time we can say thus says the Lord is when we're we're reading this. But he says, thus says the Lord, as many prophets who followed him would say. And he not only does that, but you'll notice he speaks for God in the first person. I say this, I say this, I say this. I don't recommend any of us speak for God in the first person or write any books on God's behalf in the first person, but Joshua can because he has that kind of relationship with God. He is a prophet and he says four very important things that the Israelites should know if they don't already know that would be the why behind entering into this covenant. So the first thing he says very clearly is you don't deserve what you have. This is verses two and three. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham and of Nahor, and they served other gods. Then I took your father Abraham. I don't think I've ever really seen that verse the way that I did this week. Then I took your father Abraham. I mean, why is it that Abraham was chosen? He wasn't chosen for his spirituality. He was a pagan. He practiced paganism. He wasn't chosen for his morality. He was chosen because he was chosen. (laughs) That's it. And so now Israel, looking back, they can't say that they have any moral claim to this land that they're in now. They can't say that they have some sort of spiritual right to the land because of something that they've done. They look back and they should see that it's only of God's grace. God's grace to Abraham, God's grace to Isaac, God's grace to Jacob, who would then, as you know, become Israel. 
And they should know that it's God's grace that they're in this land now. They do not deserve what it is they have. Second, I think Joshua seems to give a nod to the fact that God's ways can seem mysterious sometimes. <laughs> we don't always understand why it is that God has things unfold the way he does. But the Israelites, this is really important to understand, are hearing this from on the other side of that plan for the most part. Having crossed out of Egypt and into the promised land. And that's important because listen to verse 4. And to Isaac I give Jacob and Esau, and I gave Esau the hill country of Seir to possess. But Jacob and his children went down to Egypt. So you may remember that, that Isaac had Jacob and Esau. Jacob got the promise of the blessing. Esau did not. But then what happens? Esau, he got the hill country in Seir, which is in the promised land. And what happened to Jacob? He and his family went down to Egypt where they would be slaves for 400 years. I mean, that in the short term, if that's all you see, it doesn't say a whole lot about the way God works. It does seem kind of mysterious. It might not seem fair. And this is one of those areas of the Bible that when I read it, if I'm honest, it gives me confidence in what it is that I'm reading. Because humanly speaking, if, if people just wrote this book and the goal was to get people to believe in this sort of God, there are a bunch of pieces to this Bible that would not be in here. I think this is one of them. I mean, you look at all our heroes of the faith and what kind of baggage they carry with them. You have Solomon, who was a womanizer. You have David, who was an adulterer and a murderer. Paul also, who was a murderer. And then you get to like the Gospel of Matthew, where the resurrected Jesus comes onto the stage, onto the scene. And Matthew says, and many believed, but some doubted. I mean, if Matthew's job was to create a gospel story that compelled people to believe in Jesus, I don't think he would, he would say, but some doubted, just so you know. you know. But Joshua's job, it isn't to create, I mean, sorry, Matthew's job, it isn't to create a story, it's to relay a story, and that's what he's doing. A few years ago, Angela and I were in a taxi in New York City, and the driver, he was a Muslim, and he found out that we were Christians, and the whole drive, he was taking us to task on our faith. And I remember very clearly, he said, how can you believe in a book that is full of so much sin? And I looked at him and I said, because it is full of so much sin. If this book were just written by people, that stuff wouldn't be in there. But the truth is, God's ways can seem mysterious. They can even seem unfair at times, but they are always best. And I think the Israelites, having been told that standing in the promised land that they had not only conquered but settled and put houses and fields on they would have understood this third Joshua says that even though God's pace can seem slow sometimes God finishes what he starts look at verses six and seven then I brought your fathers out of Egypt and you came to the sea, and the, Egypts, the Egyptians pursued your fathers with chariots and horsemen to the Red Sea. And when they cried to the Lord, he put darkness between you and the Egyptians and made the sea come upon them and cover them. And your eyes saw what I did in Egypt. And I want you to see this last part. And you lived in wilderness a long time. I love that line. 
and you lived in wilderness a long time. I mean, this, that long time is like books of the Bible. And of course, they, all, they would have known what all, was, what all came along with that comment, and you lived in the wilderness a long time. I mean, maybe it's like one day when somebody says, remember Hurricane Dorian? That's all they'll have to say. And I don't know what that means yet. Hopefully, it just means, remember when everybody got so crazy over nothing? Hopefully it's not. Remember that time all the models were wrong? But one day we'll say, remember Hurricane Dorian? And we'll know immediately what that means. And in the same way, they understand what that means because the land that they were supposed to walk through in a matter of weeks, it, they were in there for a long, long time. And so I think hearing this, they would have, again, standing in the promised land, having their houses, having their crops, understanding where it is, knowing where they're gonna be buried. They would have seen that even though we were in that wandering for a long time and maybe God's pace seemed a little slow, God finishes everything that he starts. And then lastly, the last thing Joshua is reminding these people to tell them why we're making this covenant is that God provides the power that they need. God will provide the power for everything it is that he commands. He provided a way out of Egypt. He provided the plagues. He provided the parting of the Red Sea. He caused the Red Sea to close in over itself. He provided the, the land of the Amorites. He provided the power for the parting of the Jordan River, the drying up of the Jordan River, the walls of Jericho to come down, the talk, talking of the donkey. God always provides the power to follow through on everything that he commands us to do. And if there was any question that this is what Joshua is getting at, we see it cleared up very clearly in verses 12 and 13. Joshua says, it was not by your sword or by your bow I gave you the land on which you had not labored and cities that you had not built and you dwell in them. You eat the fruits of vineyards and olive orchards that you did not plant. Israel does not deserve what they have. God's ways are always best. He finishes what it is that he starts and he gives us the power to do everything that he calls his people to do. That is true of Israel and why they should renew this covenant and it's true of all of us today. And it's why we should be willing always to commit ourselves to the Lord and to stay true to the covenant relationship that we have with him. Paul starts us off making clear that none of us deserve what it is that we have. Paul says, and you were dead in the trespasses of your, and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. That's where we were, so we don't deserve anything that we have. We don't deserve the favor that we have with God. In God's ways, they might not always seem clear to us. They may seem mysterious. They may even seem unfair at times, but they are best. And when we're standing on the other side of this life, we'll acknowledge that. But in the meantime, bad things will happen to Christians. Good things will happen to non-Christians. And sometimes, not sometimes, I think always, like Jacob, if we're a part of the people of the promise, it's going to mean that we're also a people sent. So maybe it's just across the office to somebody, maybe it's to our proverbial Egypt, but if we're a people of the promise, we're sent. 
And then surely everything that God calls us to do in our sentness, he is going to provide the power to do it. And it probably one of my favorite verses in scripture where Paul talks about this, he says in 2 Corinthians, but we have this treasure, the gospel, in jars of clay, that's us. Why? Why do we have this treasure in jars of clay? To show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. So God, Joshua is telling the people why they should make this covenant and all of these reasons, they apply to us as well. And like the Israelites, we are not called to choose blindly. We are called to choose wisely. And then Joshua lays out the options in front of them. This is verses 14 and 15, second point. There are three options in front of them. Two are really bad options, and then one is the right option. So let's look at the two bad options first. Verse 15, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. So the first bad option is the God of your fathers, the God your fathers served in the region beyond the river. So remember that Abraham, he came from pagans. So God is, Joshua is telling them, that's one option. You can go back to the gods of your fathers, these pagans. This is what I call the conservative option. They, they, they would, if, this, if you wanted to conserve your heritage, right? If you wanted to stay true to the traditions of your parents and grandparents and great-grandparents, this is the option. And so I started trying to think, what are, what's our conservative option? If this is if this is the bad option that we're wired, geared towards. And I think it really depends on the culture you come from. So if you're from an Eastern culture, if you're from a Muslim culture, I think the gods of your fathers would be quite clear. I think if you look like me, if you have my Anglo heritage, it's a little harder to figure out what this looks like because some form of Christianity has been in our heritage for so long now. I mean, I could go back to the Anglo-Saxon paganism that my ancestors thousands of years ago probably uh, engaged in, but I'll be honest, I'm not that tempted to go back to Anglo-Saxon paganism. <laughs> but I think if you look like me and if you have a heritage anything like me, I think our conservative option is nationalism. And, and please don't hear me trying to hate on the United States of America. I love the United States. I am so thankful to be a part of the United States of America. I've been to lots of countries. None of them has proven better to me than the one we're in. In the 20th century, the United States straight up saved the world. I mean, I think humanly speaking, you know, if it weren't for the United States of America, the whole world would either be Russian-speaking commies or German-speaking fascists at this point. We, our, our parents and our grandparents and our great-grandparents really did save this world. But as that happened, the lines between God and country began to get blurred. We begin to, to, to see both as one in the same. And so then you have people looking at the United States of America as this like second type of Israel. Not understanding that there has only been one nation with whom God has created a covenant. And that nation was ancient Israel. I think the US is remarkable and I hope that it stays for a very long time. But our conservative option is to conserve the heritage of the country that our parents and grandparents and great-grandparents sacrificed so much to be a part of. And the temptation is to put our nation on par with our savior. 
And we have to realize that the United States, in terms of countries, is in its infancy. I mean, Rome was around for 1,500 years. And even though, even if the United States stays around for 3,000 years and cures cancer and solves world hunger, our devotion to this country should pale in comparison to our devotion of our Savior. Because we have a citizenship that is higher than the United States of America. We are citizens of heaven if we believe in Jesus Christ. So that's the conservative option. Then you have the second bad option, which is the God of the Amorites. This is what I call the progressive option. You know, the Amorites, this is these new people, this new religion. You know, they've got a, a new sexual ethic. They, they're not, fr- they're kind of freed up from having to follow all these mosaic laws. Sure, they sacrifice children, their marriages are in shambles, women are impressed and abused, but it feels so liberating. This would be the progressive option. And it's in this context that Joshua says choose. And when we look at how it is that he's laying out these options, you realize Joshua is not urging anybody towards these options. He's laying them out as absurd options. The conservative option and the progressive option, they're not going to do anything for you. They're not going to give you what you think you want in it. No political party is ever going to solve the deepest issues of humanity, the deepest problems that we have. No progressive worldview is ever going to give anyone the the freedom and the liberation and the happiness that, that we think that it's going to give us. Only the one true God is going to solve our problems and only the one true God is going to make us whole. And what Joshua is doing here And it's not only in line with best practices of covenant making in the ancient Near East. It is at least that. But you see what he's doing is also in line with the rest of the Bible and certainly the whole of the New Testament. He's laying out the why before the what. And and pretty much every writing of Paul's, he tells us why before he tells us what we should do. He tells us who God is, what all God has done for us, what kind of grace he has lavished on us before he ever tells us to do something. And probably the best example of this is the book of Romans because Paul spends 11 chapters just talking about God's grace to us in Jesus Christ. There's not a single to-do in the whole first 11 chapters. And then chapter 12 starts with one word, therefore, and there's this fire hydrant of to-dos this fire hydrant of things we should do. Look at how God has lavished his grace on you now. Therefore, go live as a child of God. So the choice is clear. It's compelling for the Israelites and for us. And then Joshua very famously says, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Are we going to serve the one true God who knows us, who made us and who loves us or made up gods that will never know us, will never love us and will never provide what we need most. That's the choice in front of everyone. And so thirdly, we then see the decision that the Israelites make. This is verses 16 through 29. And I have to say, initially, their response looks pretty good. Look at verses 16 through 18. Then the people answered, far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord and serve other gods. 
For it is the Lord our God who brought us and our fathers up from the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, and who did those great signs in our sight and preserved us in all the way that we went and among all the peoples through whom we passed. And the Lord drove out before us all the peoples, the Amorites who lived in the land. Therefore, we will also serve the Lord, for he is our God. Sounds pretty good. But you can see there's something about this response that Joshua does not buy. Look at how he responds. You are not able to serve the Lord, for he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do you harm and consume you after having done you good. I mean, this is a weird response. You know, we will serve the Lord. No, you won't. And every commentator agrees it feels strange when you, when you just read it. You have Joshua saying, you have to serve God. You have to obey God. You must give God your full obedience, your full heart. But you won't do it. He's a jealous God. And I think Joshua likely has two things in mind here that helps explain this, this interaction. First, I think he does believe that some of these people are just paying him lip service. And, and we have reasons to believe because in a moment we're gonna look at his command, we just saw part of it, to get rid of foreign gods among you. We know what happens in Judges chapter two, that much of Israel departs. We know the problems that are coming down the pike. And we have every reason to believe that Joshua sees these things and he's calling them to repent of them and to turn back to God. So I think that's one thing that's going on. I think there's another thing that's going on though. I think Joshua thinks that if there is, that if there are a few among them who are casting away their other gods and devoted to the God of the Bible, I think Joshua feels like they're a little too sure of their response. They're a little too sure of their ability to keep this relationship, not knowing that it's fundamentally God who's gonna keep them. What Joshua's doing He's calling them into a covenant love relationship. But God is a jealous God. And Joshua seems to know that the Israelites are gonna break his heart. So how is it that a God keeps a relationship with people who continue to trample over his heart? And the answer to that is in the New Testament. But it has everything to do with this word jealousy. If you have an old school paper Bible, some of you don't even know what that is, but that word jealousy, underline it. Jealousy is how this thing is answered. Because we, we, there really are two types of jealousy. You have sinful jealousy, which is probably what comes into most of our minds. We hear God's jealous and, and we think that it doesn't strike us as a good thing. But sinful jealousy, which is not what's going on here, sinful jealousy produces hate. And it, in its extreme version, murder. You know, so we've all seen the 60-minute special on the, the insanely jealous woman who kills her lover. I'm listening to a, a, pod, a true crime podcast right now that's really good. It's, it's from Mississippi. And, and it seems like that's how it's going to play out, sinful jealousy. I'll let you know how it plays out. But sinful jealousy, it leads to hate and in its extreme form, murder. But godly jealousy is a totally different thing. Godly jealousy, it doesn't lead to hate, it leads to more love. Godly jealousy would be more akin with a parent watching their child go astray. 
And somehow the more the child goes astray, the more you see depths of your love for your chi- that child that you didn't know existed before. You find yourself in positions where you would do anything, you would give anything for that child to come home. That's godly jealousy. And godly jealousy doesn't produce hate. It produces love and in its most extreme form, sacrifice. And this is how this whole thing is solved right here. How is it that God stays in a relationship with the people who continue to break the covenant? And the answer is he keeps the covenant. The answer is that he sacrifices himself on the cross in the form of Jesus Christ to maintain this relationship. He gives us the right of true sons, of perfect brides, perfect husbands. Perfect bride would be the best illustration to maintain. He, in a very real way, sacrifices himself so that we can stay in this relationship. And you see what's happening. What's happening right here is that Jesus is keeping the covenant. Jesus, by taking on the penalty of our sin, chooses us again and again and again. And this Hebrew word for choose, it isn't just choose, it's choose again and again and again. And because Jesus is choosing us again and again and again, we are now freed up to choose Jesus again and again and again. That's what Joshua is pushing his people towards and that's what God is pushing all of us towards. So after Joshua's pushback, the people stand firm and they say, no, but we will serve the Lord. Then Joshua said to the people, you are witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen the Lord to serve him. And they said to him, we are witnesses. He said, then put away the foreign gods that are among you and incline your heart to the Lord, the God of Israel. And the people said to Joshua, the Lord our God we will serve and his voice we will obey. That's the decision that they made, and so now they move into a covenant renewal. A few years ago, uh, I was speaking at a marriage conference, and I was in the lobby having breakfast before the conference, and uh, I had an older waitress. I was only in my 30s back then, so I was just a kid. As a much older waitress, and she came to me, and she understood my, uh, my role in the conference, and she said, I want you to know uh, that last week, uh, I've been married to my husband for 40 years, and last week we renewed our vows. And I said, oh, that's, that's really cool. What was that like? She said, well, I knew what the heck I was getting into this time. <laughs> she didn't use the word heck, but she knew what she was getting into. And I think that's the beauty of a covenant renewal. Whether we're talking about a covenant renewal with God or renewing our vows, you know what you're getting into. You know the person more intimately that you're covenanting with. And here we see all the elements of a covenant, if you know what to look for. Most Western Americans, we wouldn't know what to look for in the 21st century, but to have a covenant, typically you have a sacrifice, something's written down, and there's a sign. So those are typically three elements of a covenant, and we see them all here. Uh, in English, it says that Joshua made a covenant. Probably you have some sort of asterisk and footnote that says the literal translation is cut. Joshua cut a covenant. And most scholars agree that's indicating a sacrifice. Then we see clearly in verse 26, he wrote it down. Joshua wrote these words down in the book of the law of God. 
And then third, in the same verse, we see the sign of the covenant. And he took a large stone and set it up there underneath the terebinth, that is a big tree like an oak, that was by the sanctuary of the Lord. And Joshua said to all the people, behold, this stone shall be a witness against us, for it has heard all the words of the Lord that he spoke to us. Therefore, it shall be a witness against you, lest you deal falsely with your God. Now, it may seem weird to, for a stone to witness against them, but in that day and age, typically the witnesses were the pagan gods. So they weren't gonna do that. A stone, I guess, is the next best option. So they have a stone under a terebinth tree to witness and be the sign of the covenant. I don't know how many times I read the story before I really understood what was going on here. There's something going on here that would not have been lost. I don't think a single of the Israelites, do you remember what city they're in doing this? Shechem. Do you remember where Abram was when God promised him the land way back in Genesis chapter 12? Shechem. Do you remember where Jacob was after he wrestled with God? Shechem and do you remember what it is that God commanded him to do get rid of your false gods and bury them the little trinkets under the terebinth tree at Shechem the same place the same command under the same kind of tree hundreds of years later I don't think this would have been lost on any of them So they make the covenant. Joshua sends all the people back to their respective lands. And then finally, we see the end of an era. These are the last four verses of the chapter. The last four verses are marked by three funerals. So first you have Joshua's funeral. You have the prophet Joshua who spoke for God, who led his people courageously for all this time, around 110 years old, seemed to almost never falter but remain faithful to the end and I can't I can't read this after having been in Joshua now as long as we have and not think of Paul's words at the end of Paul's life when he he sees his impending and imminent death Paul says I have fought the good fight I have finished the race I have kept the faith Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. May we be able to say the same thing at our impending imminent death one day. But not only do we have Joshua's funeral, we also have Joseph's funeral. Joseph died a long time ago, but they still have his bones. And so they bring in his bones and they bury his bones in the land that his people inherited. And Joseph it was a really important thing because he is as close to a king as anyone the Israelites have ever had. And then thirdly, we see the death of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest. Can you see what's going on here? You have the death and the funeral of a prophet, of a priest, and of a king. These are the three most important roles in Old Testament life. So marking the end of an era by marking the death of a prophet, the death of a priest, and the death of a king would have been very clear to ancient Israelites who have read this over thousands of years. And incidentally, the only other time in scripture that we have 
of the death and burial of a prophet, priest, and king is when all those roles were held, are held by one person, the great prophet, the true king, the perfect priest, Jesus Christ. So what we get to ask ourselves today is whom is it that we will serve? Who is it that we're gonna serve? We get to recommit ourselves. We get to choose and continue to choose who is it that we're gonna serve? And in God's providence, we were supposed to celebrate communion today, but because of a lot of the hurricane stuff, we put it off to next week. But I think it's providential because when we think in our 21st Western evangelical circles about recommitting ourselves, rededicating ourselves to the Lord, I think we have categories that God never intended us to have because when something good happens in our life, when we rededicate our life, what do we do? We walk an aisle again. We get baptized for the second, the third, the fourth, the fifth time. Those aren't categories that God wants us to have. He, but he does want us to have a category for recommitting ourselves, for deciding again who we are going to serve and the public display that he has given us to celebrate that choice to continue to follow Jesus, to recommit to Jesus is communion. And so I say it's providential because now we have a week we have a week to think about it, a week to consider how is it that, who is it that we serve and how are we doing in serving him? We have a week to see our sin, to see our shortcomings, to repent, to run to Jesus. And then when we come back next week and we celebrate communion, it should be sweeter and it should certainly be all the more celebratory. Who is it that you serve and how is that going? Let's pray. God, we are so thankful for this day, this dry day with low winds. And we pray that that would continue. We are so thankful that you are not a God who just leaves us to be adrift in the winds and the waves, but you are a God who, who keeps us anchored. And you do that through your word pointing us to your son who gives us your Holy Spirit, Lord. We are an anchored people. And I pray that this morning that anchor would become more sure and solid and strong. That we would know clearly who it is that we serve. That we would grow in our service to you. And that we would be a sent people who would love you, display that love, and point other people back to the source of our love. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.